Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. As you can see, your sermon bulletin is reminding us we need to prepare to suffer. And it's not pleasant, but it's something that God has called each and every one of us to do. We need to prepare to suffer. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to go through verses 13 through 17 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. It says this, And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? And if ye suffer from righteousness' sake, happy are you. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of that hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well doing than for evil doing. The text this morning gives us kind of an outline of what it means to suffer. What does it mean to prepare for suffering? It says in the text, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of that hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Verse 15. You have to understand something if you don't already. The day is coming and fast approaching when our faith will be on trial. Our faith will be on trial. If you have been tuned in with what is taking place in America, or better yet, California, you know that we have come to unprecedented days. Days in this country when we will be called into question at work about in our faith. How many of you are ready to stand on trial for your faith? Now this has been happening for thousands of years as we read throughout the Bible. But you personally are now in this situation that many of the prophets, many of the Gentiles, many of the individuals that claim to know and love our Lord God, Jesus Christ. But that day is fast approaching when you yourself will be put on trial. What will you do when you're hauled into court for obviously ridiculous charges against you for sharing your personal testimony about Jesus Christ with someone. Now, you've heard me every week talk about the opportunities for you to reach others for Christ. And it's something that I almost command from the pulpit. But really, it's a plea. It's an understanding that we understand our call to Christ. We don't just come here, we get fed. You have a reason to be fed so that you can feed others. 
And that's what's being said here. What would we do? And we understand that these are perilous times and troublesome days for the serious Christian-minded believer. And I'm not speaking to the go-along, get-along type Christians or to each their own. I'm speaking to the serious-minded patron of the Christian faith who knows they have been washed in the blood of Christ and their sins have been forgiven. And I'm speaking to you this morning as your pastor and as your friend. I'm speaking to you as one serious Christian to another serious Christian. I want to speak the truth to you in love. And I hope that you will receive that truth in love. Because I think it's my responsibility and I owe you the truth because you deserve to hear it. As you well know, even if you're not a follower of politics, uh, you go home and put your head in the sand maybe. Some of us do that. I do that on occasion. I get yelled at for it. But we do that on occasion, don't we? We just want to go home, put our head in the sand, not worry about anything, the climate of the, the world, you know, politically, everything. Sometimes it's just a little much. And we don't want to deal with the problem. But you should know that the media has been lying to you about what's going on in America. They want you to feel guilty because you are a Christian. They want you to bend the rules of the Christian faith to accommodate worldly, unbiblical, nonsensical ideas. In other words, all the times that we've preached to them, that we've Bible-thumped them, so to speak, they say that it's our turn to deal with consequences. It is our turn to turn away from our view and turn to theirs. They want you to put your faith on the back burner and tolerate the mores of modern society. And if you can do that, you will be accepted by the world and acceptable to them. But if you continue to stand firm in the faith, you will be opposed and you will be persecuted. Not if and or you will be persecuted. You see, the ungodly media wants you to believe that it is you that is abnormal in society because you go to church. You read the Bible. You have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. You pray and you live for God. They want you to believe that normalcy in America is the in-your-face sexually promiscuous, anti-God, anti-Christian, LGBT, and all the other letters that go along with it, and that you are abnormal, that we as Christians are abnormal, but a nuisance to the whole of society. We shouldn't even exist. We don't exist in their realm. All we do is mess with it. We get in the way of their agenda. 
to the media in this ungodly society, you are the problem. Am I making myself clear? Am I telling you anything you don't already know? The media is the primary method of communication in modern society. And 200 years ago in American history, the church was the main form of communication. It wasn't Facebook. It wasn't Instagram. It wasn't what you get on TV. It was from the pulpit. That's where you got your information. That's where you found out what was going on. But it's changed, hasn't it? TV or radio did not exist in those days. People went to church to find out what was going on in their world. The pastor was in the know about the trends of modern society. And preachers kept their parishioners informed. But that has changed in this century. The church is in decline due to the faithlessness and lack of commitment by its congregations. Am I so bold to say that? Absolutely. I am bold to say that. Because it's truth. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? We could do nothing. We could not worry about the meeting of the needs of everyone else. You can meet the needs of your own household. Why not just worry about what you have and not what others have? Why not just take care of your four and no more, as they say, and let everything else go? If you can't do anything about it, why worry about it? Right? Why stir things up and make them worse for you? Wouldn't it be better just to accept the inevitable? Simon Peter wrote this passage to the strangers, the persecuted church, who were scattered abroad because of religious persecution. And though it was written 2,000 years ago, the message rings loud and clear in America this morning. But most of the church doesn't even know it. Why is it that Simon Peter says this? What is it that he wants us to know? What is he trying to convey? He wants you to know that if you are a sincere, sold-out Christian and surrendered Christian... You can expect some suffering to come your way at the hands of this godless, evil world. Persecution might come to you by being ridiculed, mocked for your faith, being ignored or passed over on your job because of your faith, isolated or cut off from everyone else because of your faith. Abused and beaten because of your faith. Imprisoned or even martyred for your faith. Whatever the form of persecution, it is coming. Hear the words of Paul when he wrote to Timothy. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 
he's talking about it like it's already happened. Because it's going to happen. The question is, how will you bear up under the persecution against the church for this faith in Jesus Christ and the Bible? How will we rise up? When the time comes, and brethren, it will, how will we respond to the persecution for the glory of God and faith in Christ? While suffering is not something any of us wishes to do, if we must suffer for our faith in Christ, let us do it as a badge of honor to Jesus Christ who procured our salvation by his own suffering. A badge of honor. A badge of honor. If we are to be successful in prevailing in the face of opposition and persecution, there are four attitudes four attitudes that we must take on. First, when persecution comes, we need to take up the attitude of determination. Determination. And who is he that will harm you if he be followers of that which is good? But and if he suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. You see, the first attitude that must prevail in persecution and opposition is the attitude of doing right in the face of everything that is wrong. Let me repeat that. Do right in the face of everything that is wrong. The word followers means imitators. And to be a follower then of that which is good then means to discover what is good and then to imitate it. Hence the reason God sent his son on this earth. To give us that perfect example. Now granted we do not live up to that example. But it is the example nonetheless. And God demands perfection. Understand that. We're not perfect people. But God demands perfection. So how does that come about? How are we even to get close to what God is expecting of us? We don't. But that's the reason he sent his son to die. So that when the time comes and we're before the Lord, he can say those words to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Because he was the propitiation for that. He understood we could not do this on our own. But as Christians, God is calling us to be determined. We need to take that on. We need to be the believer that we say we are. The sincere Christian believer does not go along to get along. The serious Christian believer steps up to the plate. Finds out for themselves what is real. What is important. True and virtuous. And then follows that example to the best of his or her ability with the dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God. You don't do this alone. God's there to back you up. But he wants you to step up to that plate. And if any of you have played baseball, have any of you ever faced a 90 mile an hour fastball? I have. I couldn't do it. <laughs> Number one, I didn't have the practice and I didn't have the ability 
But I had the determination that I was going to stand there and see what it was like. God is calling each and every one of us as Christians to step up to the plate and see what it's like. Have you done this in your life? Where you've been so sold out that you would walk up anywhere because God told you to? And allow God to protect you or do what he does best? And that's work through you? That's what he's saying here. The serious Christian believer will become zealous about doing what is right. I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian and everything was still pretty foreign to me, I was excited. Like, hey, what are we doing next? Okay, I'm a Christian now. What does that mean? What do I do? Remember how zealous we were? We were willing to do what it took to serve God. And then along the line, we get through those valleys and plains in our Christian life, our kingdom life. But you see, it's during those times when it's most crucial to understand that God is going to place an opportunity before you so he brings you back to those peaks so he can use you. You see, he or she will develop a god honoring determination to live for God in a world that is living against God. In other words, the serious Christian will become a salmon Christian. What do I mean by that? A salmon Christian is one that swims upriver against the current of pollution and degradation with the main course in mind of reaching its God-intended destination. The serious disciple of Jesus Christ will determine To sell out for the glory of God no matter what comes his or her way. We have to be like salmon because we are going to be swimming upstream and we're doing it now. And we've been doing it for thousands of years. We're swimming upstream. But we have to allow ourselves to be consumed with the passion and determination of doing what is right. Even when everyone else is doing wrong. Do right and do right till the stars fall. Do right and if you don't know what is right, dive into your Bible and seek its teacher. Seek it for yourself. Follow this admonition. Therefore to him that knows to do good and does it not, To him it is sin. James chapter 4. If you know it's right and you don't do it, shame on you. Shame on us. There seems to be four kinds of people when it comes to doing the right thing. And they are as follows. First, people who care less about doing right. In other words, it doesn't really matter to them. They want everyone to be happy, but you. They want everyone to be happy, but you. Hmm. They They want us to understand that life is short, and we know this. Life is short. So we are to enjoy every experience, whether it's lawful or lawless. See where we're falling into the pitfall here. This is what they believe. 
They believe experience everything you possibly can, no matter what it is. Because in the eyes of these people, what is right, decent, and just makes common sense. And when it makes common sense, guess what they do? They rebel against it. Why? Because it's just the thing to do. I'm going to rebel because so-and-so said it was okay. So-and-so justified my feeling of rebellion, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. And this is the prevalent attitude in our society and all the different communities that we have that people associate with. This is their common goal. Their common goal is to buck the system. Everything that makes sense, ah, we're going to go the opposite direction because it feels good. It works with what I'm working with. We can't fall into that trap. People who care about doing right if it benefits them. There are these kinds of people. They care about doing right if it benefits them. If doing right is convenient, well, then by all means do it. If doing right benefits them, they will do it. But if doing the right thing costs them something or demands anything from them or even takes away something from them, they refuse to do it. They get lazy. They don't want to work hard. They want everything handed to them. How about people who profess to do right, but really do not? See, they want others to think that they believe in doing right, but the reality is they are not doing the right thing. They are more interested in pleasing themselves than pleasing God. And the fourth kind of person is people who have a zeal to do right. And here's the catch. They do it then. They want to do right and they do right. And that's the type of people Peter is writing to here. They are a few and far between. And they are small in number in comparison to those on the broad path that leads to destruction. They have committed themselves to doing the right thing. No matter what. And their thinking is, my Lord did right, so will I. What type of people are we? What category do you fall into? Understand when Peter was writing this, he was calling people out. And saying, I don't care if you're person one, two, three, or four. Well, in reality, he was hoping for four. But if you fell in through one through three, Peter was giving them a warning, saying, God's not liking that. And part of it was because some of them did not understand, and some of them flat out just didn't care. But what Peter is saying here that is we must be zealous in doing the right thing. We must be passionate followers of Jesus Christ. We must be fanatical about doing what is right. And I know we read stories about, and I hear about them back east all the time, about the fanatical Christians out in the streets with their signs and condemning uh, whatever group may be the group for the week, right? It's a different group every week. But they're out there condemning them. Now understand, 
This is also what God does not want. It is not our job to condemn. It is our job to love. Does that mean we accept what they believe? Of course not. But we also do not condemn them because we cannot bring anyone to faith through condemnation. The only one with that capable power is God himself. But somehow we take on that responsibility sometimes. We meet someone in our life, maybe a family member, friend, and we think, oh, I'm going to bring them to Christ. But the way I'm going to do it is by condemning them, making them feel about this big so that when they see that through the Lord Jesus Christ they're built up, that will bring them in. How many of you have been there and understand that that is a, a failed task nine times out of ten? It is not our job to condemn. According to Simon Peter, we will be blessed for it if we become those fanatical type people. And I don't mean crazy people. I mean fanatical that you're just totally sold out for Christ. Totally sold out. When we focus on the Lord Jesus, we can lose everything that life counts as dear. But yet we will still have the most important thing left. How can you have Jesus Christ and be at a loss in this life? God has promised us that. All things work together for our good. Philippians 3.19. God will provide all of our needs. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The spirit of Christ will be manifested in our lives. Our reward is great in heaven. We will enjoy eternal life with God. God will strengthen us when we suffer persecution. God will use our suffering as a testimony for Jesus Christ. These are just a few examples in the Bible that God gives us to encourage us to take a step out in faith and be sold out. I know the times where I felt like that, where I felt like I was totally sold out. Man, nothing can stop me. Till it does. But that's because I've let it. This is sustainable. This feeling, this action that God wants to give you, it is sustainable. Now you might say, well, there's no way you can be on fire for God like that every day of your life. Oh, yes, you can. Yes, you can. In the face of persecution and opposition, Take up the attitude of determination. If you feel like you're taking a step back for something that God wants you to be, be determined to step right back into it. And watch how he blesses you. Watch how he works through you. Doing the right thing no matter what the outcome. When persecution and opposition come, there also must be an attitude of dedication. As it says in verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The word sanctify means to be set apart. And it's used 29 times in the New Testament. It literally means to make holy or to purify or to consecrate or venerate. 
When the topic of sanctification is mentioned in the Bible, it usually means the holy act of God, whereby he actively and continuously sets the believer in Jesus Christ apart from the world unto himself. In other words, we have nothing to fear. Even when we face that opposition, even when we face persecution, we don't have to fear. Now, I'm, I'm in the same shoes as you and say, well, yeah, that's better, easier said than done, right? Can't God accomplish anything through us? Are you a firm believer in that? You know, God wants us to put him to the test in the correct way, of course. But God is calling upon us to ask him those questions, to, again, step out in faith and allow him to work through you, to be sanctified, to be set apart. While justification is a sacred act performed in the believer's past with abiding results, Sanctification is the continual process whereby God is making the believer like his son, Jesus Christ. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Later on in chapter 6, And such were some of you, but you are washed, and you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit of our God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. You see, in these verses... Peter has turned the tables. He is not writing of that which God is doing to us and for us. He is writing of that which we are to do ourselves. We are to equip ourselves to do these things. Sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. He is saying that we are to be set apart to Jesus Christ in our own hearts. A better way to say it might be to... um, Set Jesus Christ upon the throne of your heart. See, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, we receive the Lord Jesus Christ into our lives. And sometimes, say, we have received him into our hearts. What we mean by that is that Christ comes into our lives and lives and abides in us. If Christ is living within us, Do you really have control over your life? That's what he's asking. You've asked me to come and be your savior. Why aren't you letting me fulfill that promise? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are becoming two. To whom God would make known that it is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But let me ask you a question. Though you are a believer and Christ lives in your heart, 
Is he in the key position of your life? In other words, does he have the most prominent place in your life? Is he first place? Is he last place? Is he somewhere in between? See, it's important in the face of opposition and possibly persecution that we set Christ in his rightful place in our lives. And so the question becomes, have you set him there? Have you set him there? Have we dedicated our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Does he occupy the throne of our heart? Or are there things vying for his rightful position there? In the face of persecution and opposition, take up the attitude of determination. Do right no matter what the outcome. And in the face of that opposition, set Jesus Christ on the throne of your life. And thirdly this morning, take on the attitude of defense. Of defense. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Be able to defend your faith. I've been teaching apologetics for the co-op kids now since the beginning of September. And we're going in topics that most adults don't even touch with a 10-foot pole. But they're learning how to defend their faith. They're learning to defend why they believe what they believe. And believe me, some of them can probably come up and preach to you about it. And it's wonderful. But how many of us can say that you're ready to defend your faith? That you have the tools necessary to do such? The word answer means defense. It is the word apologian from which we get the word apologetics. Christian apologetics is the, 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 the disciplined practice of giving biblical answers to tough questions that the world has conjured up concerning the Christian faith and our faith in Jesus Christ. Because, my friends, Christianity demands a verdict. Understand that. It demands a verdict. If you have not seen the movie God is Not Dead 2, I urge you to see it. I urge you to see it. The story in this movie is exactly the place we are in American society at this present time. Being a Christian is more difficult in this society than being an atheist. You may not realize this, but your faith is on trial and under attack, and you better know how you are going to defend it. Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? Is it true that only those who believe in Christ Jesus go to heaven? Is it true that those who know and believe in Christ Jesus go to heaven? Are, they these, are these the only ones that are ent given entrance to heaven? Why do you believe that? Why do you say that? Explain to me from the Bible why you believe that. These are the questions that were asked constantly. Why do you believe that? Why do you say that? Show me the proof. So 
Some of you might say, well, that's what our church or our pastor believes. Kind of the cop-out answer, right? Which I'll accept because I'd love to go talk to him. I'll explain to him why we believe what we believe. But I'm going to bring you along with me. You don't get out of it scot-free. But no. Why do we believe what we believe? Why do we say what we say? Because we understand that we don't stake our eternal life on what the preacher believes. Because you want to know for yourself. I say this all the time. Don't believe everything I tell you. Go find it for yourself. And if you find something contrary, bring it back. I'm not above reproach. I'm not perfect. Find it for yourselves. Is there a God? And is he your creator and redeemer? How do you know that? What biblical proof do you have? Are you willing to bet your soul on that one? You better know how to answer that question. How about what is God's name? Is the God of the Christian faith the same as the God of the Muslim faith? Are Jehovah and Allah the same? Is one the true God and the other a false God? Do you see why it's so important to know how to defend your faith? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God or is he only a good man that lived 2,000 years ago? Understand, faith demands an answer. And you better know how to answer that question. Is the Bible true? And if it is, is the Koran true as well? What is the difference between the two? How do you know that? Can you give a definitive answer as to why you believe the Bible is the only true word of God? And if it is the word of God, are you living by it? Is hell a real place? And will people who refuse Jesus Christ spend eternity in that lake of fire? What defense from the scriptures do you have? And do you feel comfortable waging eternity on what you believe? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And can you tell others how they can have one with him as well? This is what Peter is writing about in this verse. If someone questions your faith in Christ, can you defend it? Do you know that you know that you are going to heaven when you die? And can you unashamedly give an answer to those who ask you of the hope that lies within you? The Christian believer is admonished to know how to give an answer to whomever asks him or her about their personal relationship with Christ. Can we do that? Can we do that? This means that you and I are supposed to know how to answer our neighbors, our friends, and even our enemies. Can we make answer to them? It means that we are, <laughs> we are supposed to know how to answer all 
civil authorities, our employers, employees, legal authorities, and strangers. Can we do that? The Christian believer is not only to know how to answer, but he is to engage as a witness wherever he is or she is, and to whoever whoever him or her speaks to. The believer is to give an answer every day to everyone who asks and those who will listen. But know this, being ready takes preparation. It means that you have to study your Bible. It means that you have to meditate on the scriptures daily. It means that you must spend time with God every day, becoming acquainted with him while becoming a thorough student of his word. It means that you must live a life of prayer, seeking God's direction, blessing, and will. During my time in seminary, those eight years, which seemed like it was 40, we went through the Bible cover to cover seven times. So about once a year, we'd go cover to cover. And you know what I found very interesting? Every time I've read it, it was different. Every time that I read through, new things were revealed to me. And that was exciting. God is encouraging us to get excited about these things. And so when we get deep into his word, when we allow God to work through us, God will reveal things to you that you never knew before. And in turn, you get others excited. And they see that excitement in us. That's what Peter's saying. Get excited. Know how to defend your faith. Notice that Peter writes how the believer is to be careful how he or she answers every man. He is to do it in the spirit of meekness and fear before the Lord. He is to develop a tender spirit in humility and meekness. He is to be a witness in the spirit of the fear of God. He is to hold God in high regard and reverence. He is to bear a strong but gentle witness. Christians are always to be on the alert, waiting for the opportunity to speak up for the Lord Jesus. And finally this morning, the fourth thing that we need to do and the attitude that we must develop and act upon is our duty to God. We have a job. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil doing. And that's what I want to close on this morning. Let's make it our duty to live in such a way that we have a good conscience about how we have lived. That way, what Jesus Christ thinks about us will matter more than what others think about us. That way we know that we have lived a life pleasing to Jesus Christ. Let's live in such a way that no matter whatever accusation is cast upon us, it won't matter. It won't matter because God will be glorified through our relationship to him. We can hold our heads and we can hold our hearts up high. Not in pride, but in gratitude towards Jesus Christ for allowing us 
the opportunity to be a testimony of his grace and mercy in our lives. Let's make it our duty to live with a good conscience. So in the face of that persecution and opposition, we can take up that attitude of determination no matter and doing right no matter what. In the face of persecution and opposition, take up the attitude of dedication. Set Christ where he belongs on that throne in your heart first and foremost. Not second place, not last place, not on the bench. First and foremost, be ready to answer every man concerning your Christian faith. And in the face of opposition and persecution, take up the attitude of duty. Make it our duty to live in good conscience towards Jesus Christ and therefore before men. Let me end with the story. It says, in the summer of 2012, I knelt over the frail shell of a child, my son, strapped to all manner of medical monitoring equipment. His body failing, his frame thinning, the medical staff at Arkansas Children's Hospital was at a loss. They had no answers, no direction. He was an anomaly, they said. And they need to regroup after making him as comfortable as possible. And though the medical community struggled to sort it all out, my faith community seemed to have every answer. God will provide, one said, because God would respond to my great faith. God was setting up a miracle, another said. God works all things together for good, I was reminded. Platitude, platitude, platitude. I smiled through all of them, even nodded. Silently I wondered, did all those words amount to anything? Well-meaning though, weren't they? Hunched over my son, all those platitudes haunting, my phone rang. I looked at the screen and read the name. It was a pastor from a more reformed church in my hometown. And as I answered the phone, I wondered what platitude I might hear. There was a purpose in my son's suffering. Everything has a kingdom purpose. After an exchange of greetings, I clenched my jaw, stiffened, and braced myself. Through the phone, I heard only three words. I'm so sorry. There was a pause, and he told me to holler if I needed anything. He said he'd be praying, and that was that. It was a moment of selfless solidarity, a moment in which this man of the cloth didn't force-feed me anemic answers or sell me some fix-all version of a bright and shiny gospel. Instead, he did the work of Christ himself. He entered into my suffering. And years later, after a long season of healing, both my son's and my own, his words served as a reminder of the Christian response to suffering. We enter into it together. We share in it together. Lament with each other. Now I suppose it's natural, our tendency to try to run from suffering. To somehow try to drag other folks from their own. Because we Christians use the holy tools at our disposal and particularly the misinterpretation of scripture. 
The problem is that's not the way of Christ. Christ, God with us, entered into the suffering of humanity. He lamented with those who lamented, extended compassion and healing to those who were hurting. Ultimately, he took on the existential suffering of all mankind as he endured his own suffering on the cross. And so that's what we are called to do. We are to prepare for suffering. But understand that we don't suffer alone. We do this together. We do it together. While suffering is not something any of us wishes to do, if we must suffer for our faith in Christ, let us do it as a badge of honor to Jesus Christ who procured our salvation by his own suffering. Amen? Amen. Ben, come and lead us in our benediction this morning. Let's stand as we sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we leave here this morning, I pray that others will see the hope in us, that not all is lost. In the world that is evil and dying, you are the life that brings joy to others. Let us be that example, Lord, in our lives. Let us be determined to reach those for your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for our time here this morning. Bless us to our appointed destinations. And Lord, I pray that we do not close our eyes, that we don't act as we're the ones that are abnormal here. Lord, you are the normalcy that is needed in everyone's lives. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, and Lord, we love you. And it's in your name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.